Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley, back from vacation, looking rested, looking good. Got a a haircut. Got a haircut and had a great vacation up, up to the Idaho you were telling me, and which I, I think a lot of our listeners won't be surprised at, but you were actually meditating out on a boat and on a pond, yeah, and something yes. magical happened. Oh, so yeah, that was fun. Um, so up in McCall, Idaho, we like to rent this house that's on this little pond once a year, mm-hmm. have a little vacation up there. And I like to go out in the morning on the little rowboat, get out in the middle of the pond, and it's just glassy. and Very Miyagi-esque. And, yes, and just sit there and have my meditation out there. And I just, I love it. It's beautiful. And a osprey was circling around mm. and dipped down, picked out a fish right in front of me and took off with the fish. And to be honest, I just felt like I was on the Nature Channel or something. It cool. was fantastic. I'm doing this right. And we saw moose and bear and had a great time. It's just a beautiful place. It's a little smoky this because we got the fires going on up there, but it was great. Did you see a baby moose? A moussette. I'm pretty sure that's not it. Are you sure they're not um, calling I'm pretty sure not. A moussette might be the drill team for a yeah, high school whose on mascot the drill team. is the moose. Yeah, yeah. But I don't think a moussette is the technical term for a baby moose. Okay. I th- you know, words are hard. Yeah. And so sometimes it's more fun to make up your own. I do it all the time. And I think, honestly, most of the words we have must have been made up by somebody at one point. Right? They just added a bunch to the English dictionary. So why can't I make yeah, them? Yeah, I, I, I think you can. Yeah, there you go. So uh, I had a cool experience last night. Let's hear about it. Uh, I was asked to go back and speak to Pinnacle Recovery. Where you went to recovery. And oddly enough, or maybe they planned it this way, four years ago, this time of year, I was a client at Pinnacle Recovery. Oh, yeah. You would have still been there, huh? You know, because my sobriety date is uh, September 3rd. Mm -hmm. My girlfriend says September 4th. Congratulations. Uh, Well, thank you very much. And over four years. And so they invited me back and I was like, you bet. Yeah, I want to go back. And so I go back there and, and I mean, it was a flood of emotions. Uh, I mean, for me getting Is this the first time you've been back in that? I know you did some other things there, but like. First time I've been back in over two years. Yeah. And I mean, I worked there right out of recovery uh, and and I I spent some time there, but this is the first time I've been back in a long time. Yeah. And I pulled into the gates, and I buzzed. They buzzed me in. I drive into the lot. I see the volleyball court. I see the house. I, and I, I mean, just a flood of emotions. What kind of emotions? It was like I was grateful. I was scared. Uh, I mean, it was surreal. Probably a little uncomfortable, right? Uh, yeah, but not necessarily in a bad way. Not in a bad way, yeah. because four years ago I was a client. In that house. I was trying to figure out my addiction. I was trying to figure out my next move. I was just, I mean, there was a lot of unknown four years ago. I I didn't know what my life would look like. If you would have told me four years ago that this is what my life would look like, I would have said, you need to be in rehab because you're obviously on something. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, because. Well, it's interesting that you bring up the flood of emotions because, um, you know, if you want to Google object relations theory, people have the ability to. Uh, and we almost can't help it, make relationships with objects in our environment, any kind of object, a human being or a, a water bottle or whatever. And so a house like that, the grounds, like you said, you notice the volleyball courts and the house and everything. The tree by everyone smoked by. The, the smoking tree, yep. sure, yeah. And so those things became associated. You created emotional connections with them. And in a situation like that, I bet it was kind of polarizing. That was one of the lowest points of your life and in some ways became one of the high points of your life. It's interesting. So you had that polarization of emotion all associated with this one place. 
It's interesting you say that because I sit down and, I, and, and they scheduled me to speak to him for an hour, and I wasn't even really sure what I was going to speak. I was just going to sit down. Because we know you like to prep a lot yeah. before you go speak So places. I was like, we're, let's just open this up and see where it goes. And, um, you know, I, I told some of my story. I answered a lot of questions. But I sat there because I remember the first time I walked through those doors, I felt like I was being punished. I felt like recovery was a punishment. Sure. I thought this is how bad my – You screwed up. Now you've got to go do this. Pay the piper. This is how bad my life has got that now I've got to go do this. And I asked them sitting there. there It was a full house. There was about 16 people there. I said, how many of you guys feel like this is a punishment? Nobody really raised their hand because I don't think anybody – but I was like, come on. you know. And you could look at their eyes and I go, you've got to change your mindset on that. I said, this is not a punishment, although it may feel like that, and you might tell yourself it is, but it's not. This is truly a gift. This is an opportunity to get your life back. And I remember, I remember making that mind switch while I was in Pinnacle. Now, it wasn't until the third or fourth week when I was in there that I realized this was an opportunity to get my life back, and it wasn't a punishment, mm-hmm. and then things went a lot smoother. Yep. But first and foremost, when you go to those, most people find it as a punishment. I believe that. Sure. And so we had a great conversation, a lot of hugs. I cried. They cried. Uh, and I told them. And it was weird because I, I remember when I was in uh, treatment and I would go to the 12-step rooms and somebody would stand up who had a, a good amount of sobriety underneath their belt. And they would go, to be honest with you, I'm a little envious of where you guys are right now. And I'm like, you are a complete jack <laughs> because if you're envious of where I'm at right now, yeah. you're obviously still gone. You yeah. know what I mean? But I said that last night because I was, because they were right on the cusp of magical things if they accept it, if they do the work. Oh, okay. You I know what I mean? That. It's like, like it, it's a new, exciting experience that you don't know you're about to have or could have. Yes. And you've had it. And yes. so you, you kind of being there reminded you of that feeling. I remember what it was like when I was like, holy cow, I'm going to be okay. Yeah. Oh, what a relief, huh? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I, okay, life's not going to be great. And okay, I can, I can deal with that. I've heard people describe it as like the chains falling off. You yeah. don't realize you were chained. To your addiction. It was holding you down, holding you back. You don't really realize it because you're trying to survive every day. And I've been carrying them around for 30 years. But Yep. So they're old friends. Yeah. But that epiphany, that moment when they sort of fall away and you realize I'm going to be okay, that must be exhilarating. I, 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 it's an awakening. Yeah. It really is a true awakening where you go, holy cow. I mean, I remember being there for like three weeks and going, I've been here for three weeks and I haven't had a beer and I'm still alive. Yeah. You know, and- yeah. I didn't know if that was possible. Yeah. It's how bad I had gotten and how far I had been. I mean, to, to realize that I'm going to be okay and that the world's not okay right now, but I, I could get through it. And that, and that was the awakening part. Mm-hmm. So it was very wonderful for me to go there and be able to experience it with these guys and share my story and maybe give them some hope because I'm sitting there telling them and, uh, and it's like, I was there. I was in that corner chair where you're sitting right there four years ago. Mm. I had that same notebook you have in your hand. I've still got it in my closet of my gratitude journal where every day at the end of the night we sit down and write three things we're grateful for. Mm-hmm. I was I was there. 
I know where the good ice in this building is because for some reason that's what they tout when you walk in the door. And this is where the good ice is. Gotcha. I don't know what it has to do with recovery, but I go, hey, how do you guys know about hey. the good ice? And everyone raised their hands. Any good stuff you can get. You yeah. know, and we talked about the chef and we talked about sober softball. We talked about going to the gym and we talked about being honest with your therapist. Yeah. You know, I said the inside these four walls is the first time I've ever said a lot of stuff that's been in my head out loud. Mm. In a safe environment. Things that I've been telling myself over and over again, but never had the courage to say out loud. Yeah. And people don't understand how freeing that is to actually put it out there. Because you walk around with these negative thoughts, these mean thoughts, whatever they are in your head. And you, you, you have a dialogue with yourself. You talk to yourself and, you, you know, and all that stuff. But when you put it out there and you say it it's out loud it? and you share it with somebody, yep. that is so, and the dumb word, therapeutic. <laughs> You know? Yeah, the, I mean, ther- the therapeutic word is catharsis. It's it's a relief. It's re- it's a release. It's a relief, uh, and it takes on a, a different connotation or meaning. Like we understand things differently when we say them out loud. When yeah. We, when we share them, when we write them down, it, it's a very different experience. But the truth is, most people hold it inside, and it just pings around in our head and gets weird. You know, it gets bigger. Yeah. Our secrets keep us sick. Yep. And if we can't get them out and we can't shed some light on them, chances are we're, we're doomed to repeat. Yeah. I mean, it just, it, it's, that's the ugly truth. Well, good for you, man. I'm glad you were able to go there and have that experience. And sounds like you got to reconnect with people in that setting again. And I bet that was special. Because the opposite of addiction isn't abstinence. It's connection. And, Absolutely. And, I, and I'm grateful for the connection that you guys allow me to do every week with this podcast. Uh, Dr. Matt. And you wanted to bring something up because we had a rerun last week because you were out of town. Right. Uh, but the week before, we had Catlin on. Catlin came on, and uh, I appreciate her being willing to share her story like I am with everyone who comes on. I think that we shouldn't ever overlook the fact that, like you said, getting out here and saying it. Some people we've had on the show have had a lot of practice sharing their story. Some people, hardly any at all. And, and Cat- so I appreciate that. And Catlin was a little hesitant to share her story. She wanted to, but a little hesitant because her DOC is marijuana. Marijuana, right. And she knew that not everybody is on board with feeling like marijuana can be a problem, especially not an addiction. Or, or you know, because I read some of the comments and say, well, marijuana is not a real addiction. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and it's that real, that uh, that, right. that precursor of real that really, you know, well, yeah. again, Catmull and I mean, Catlin will tell you that, no, this was. It was for her. And so I wanted to address that today because and I, don't, I, I actually really, really appreciate everybody who shared comments about her story on Facebook and everything. Mm-hmm. I think that was great. And some people brought up some things like, you know, wh- basically the, the theme was, is marijuana really an addiction? What is an addiction? Uh, you, you know, and I, I think there's a, I was, we were talking off air uh, before this about the fact that in my opinion, and I think other people would agree, marijuana is the most controversial drug uh, out there for the following reason. Everybody can pretty much agree with every other drug, including alcohol, that it's not good for you. Like, mm-hmm. like they're, they're, you know, like, I mean, you know, that they they're problematic. Like, you said a couple glasses of wine will really do my heart good. Yeah, a couple glasses of wine are different than being an alcoholic. But yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, people people can pretty much agree that all those other drugs are problematic. But people are extremely split on marijuana, and I think it comes down to three kind of perspectives. Okay, 
Some people are of the perspective that it's good for you, and emphasis on the word good. It has lots of medicinal purposes. It came it's, from the earth. Came, yeah, and they, they will advocate for the fact that more people should be smoking more often. It's very good for you. Don't panic. It's organic. That's what yeah, they said in college. That's, yeah, that's a good one. I like how you said that. And uh, the middle, middle category would be like it's sort of neutral, that it can have some medicinal properties, but it's not really bad for you, but it's not necessarily something you need to use if you don't have a problem like pain management or anxiety, those sorts of things. And then you have people on the other camp that say it's actually harmful for you. And that camp is the controversial camp. But the reality is, since it's become more mainstream, legalized in many states for various capacities, uh, we've been able to do a lot more research on it. And the research is informing, and a research always should inform our opinions about things that we don't understand. Okay. Your opinion is your opinion. Mm-hmm. That is not necessarily reality. I may have opinions about things that don't really match reality, but they're my opinion. So I thought I'd do this. This is going to be super fun, Ooh. and I hope I don't lose anybody. I love this. it. But I want to. Re- I actually just want to answer the question, not with my own words, but to read to you what the research is saying right now. And it'll be brief, so hang in there. I think it's actually really interesting. Uh, NIDA.NIH.gov. Okay. National Institute of Drug Addiction is part of the National Institutes of Health. Mm-hmm. And so that's a pretty solid place to go for any kind of health-related research if you're interested. So let me just read a little bit and then we'll discuss it real fast. Marijuana use can lead to the development of problem use known as marijuana use disorder. So right there, there is a disorder called marijuana use disorder, which takes the form of addiction in several cases. Recent data suggests that 30% of those who use marijuana may have some degree of marijuana use disorder. 30%, that's a lot. People who begin using marijuana before the age of 18 are four to seven times more likely to develop a marijuana use disorder than adults. So what we're finding is that as an adolescent's brain is wiring, remember we have new wiring and development all the way through our Mm mid-20s, you are wiring problematic use when you use any drug, including marijuana, during your adolescent years. Uh, Marijuana use disorder uh, uh, disorders are often associated with dependence. That's important. We recognize that word, right? Dependence leads to addiction. Yeah. Yeah. In which a person feels withdrawal symptoms when not taking the drug. And Catelyn definitely described her withdrawal symptoms in the story that she shared. People who use marijuana frequently often report irritability, mood and sleep difficulties, decreased appetite, cravings, restlessness, and various forms of physical discomfort with that peak within the first week after quitting and last up to two weeks. Guess what? That's a withdrawal. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So we have dependency and we have withdrawal. Uh, Marijuana dependence occurs when the brain adapts to large amounts of the drug by reducing production of sensitivity to certain neurotransmitters. And guess what? Those neurotransmitters aren't no big deal. They, in fact, affect how we manage our moods, uh, including things like focus, concentration, and even basic functioning of of our systems like heart and liver and all of that kind of stuff. Um, Marijuana use disorder becomes an addiction when the person cannot stop using the drug, even though it interferes with many aspects of their life. Starts to take control. Yep. You you feel like you have to have it, even if it might threaten your relationships, your job, your ability to go to sleep, that kind of stuff. You're hiding it. You're keeping it. You're isolating. Yep. Estimates of the number of people addicted to marijuana are controversial. On the addiction, that, like I said, it's a big source of controversy right now, um, in part because the studies of substance use often use dependency as a proxy for addiction. So it's important. We've talked about this on the show. Being dependent isn't necessarily the same as addiction, but when you have dependency plus uh, withdrawal symptoms 
and and then you we, we essentially can say we're struggling with addiction. Yeah. Those studies suggest that 9% of people who use marijuana will become dependent on it. Oh, 9%, that's not a big deal, right? 17% if you start using it in your teens. Guess what? That's millions of people. That's millions. not a couple of people. That's millions of people. Okay? And I think sometimes we hide in the numbers like that 9% and, and it glosses by it. But when you put that in a real perspective of millions of people. Yeah. That's a big deal. Well, and so currently we would the the studies show about four million Americans uh, meet the diagnostic criteria for marijuana use disorder. Four million, and then you add into that that we're having stronger strains, uh, and, and and that's part of the research that's going on. Marijuana from the '60s is not the same as marijuana today. It's it's engineered, and these labs in which it's being engineered. Are, are don't have oversight, and uh, the the engineering of the marijuana is in order to make it more potent, which uh, has been successful. And I also want to just share a personal story. I recently hospitalized one of my patients uh, who had no history of psychosis at all, no family history, no personal history of psychosis. Remember, psychosis is like what you see in schizophrenia. You're seeing and hearing things that aren't really there. You're delusional. You're out of touch with reality. You can't function. It's very miserable to be psychotic. And uh, this person just had anxiety and had been smoking a lot more marijuana than any of us knew as a young adult person. And they became completely psychotic. This is just recently and had to be hospitalized and detoxed and we're still struggling to get their mental health back to kind of a previous baseline. Uh, Through various sources, the marijuana that this person was using was tested and found to be laced with fentanyl, right? And so a lot of people think, oh, it's safe to just buy it off the street. It's okay. Well, the reality is if you're selling marijuana and so is everybody else, you want to be the number one dealer, people start putting things in there that they think will... Scary. Yeah, make it more potent and so can cause all sorts of problems, including uh, psychosis. So I'm I'm hopeful for this patient of mine that he can get back to a baseline, but it's it's pretty scary stuff. So I, to answer people's questions, and I, I hope it doesn't come across as argumentative at all, but I just want to educate our listeners and just say, listen, what we know about marijuana, myself included, is not really probably accurate. We need to be doing our research and the research is rapidly evolving. It's not a static thing. It's not like alcohol where we kind of know what we need to know about alcohol, right? We know how it affects the brain. We know where it comes from. We know how we get it. Um, and, and we know what it does to us. Marijuana is an evolving thing. The actual strains of the drug are evolving and changing all the time. The, the, the use of it is changing all the time. The ages are getting younger and younger. I've had kids come in the office who admit to smoking marijuana in fourth grade, oh. nine years old, 10 years old. Okay. And, and so please understand that whatever your personal feelings are about marijuana, those are yours and that's fine. But do do some research, like read something that's not on social media. Go to National Institute of Health is always a great resource for any sort of mental health or substance abuse research. Find out what people are saying and then keep coming back because it's it's an evolving practice of understanding. So it isn't as safe and medicinal as people think. And if you might not even know that you're predisposed to things like psychosis, uh, you can create schizophrenia-like symptoms in your own brain that you may never recover from. And Thanks. so so be careful with it. Now, that being said, I recognize that there's some good research that 
Medicinal using it in the right way can be helpful to certain people for certain things, but let's not overdo our, our perception that it that it is without risk. You know, and, my- and Catlin, in my opinion, absolutely had an addiction to marijuana. And guess what? She's not the only person I've met and that's, who that's, truly meets criteria. I agree, and I and I applaud her for coming on and telling her story. Yeah. You know, that's what my dad says about uh, opinions. What? <laughs> I think I know, but go ahead. Opinions are like bum holes. Mm-hmm. Everybody has them, and they usually stink. They all stink. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Hey, yeah. we've got a great show for you today, and I'm super excited for this uh, lady to come on. And uh, I've been talking to her. She's about already a- raised the energy level. Oh, in the she's room, amazing. Like, her name is Melissa Catmull. How are you? I'm good. How are you? And uh, we've been talking for two weeks, trying to plan this out and get you here. And uh, you're here to share two stories of addiction. Right. Um, mainly. Um, talking about an eating disorder, which is an addiction, Yes, um, with a side story of um, an addiction to oxy and benzodiazepines. So we're going to find out more about Melissa in just a few seconds. You're listening to Project Recovery. Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. Our guest today is Melissa Catmull. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Now, Melissa, uh, you told me off air that you've been listening to me <laughs> since the days of my early radio career. It's true. It's true. I you remember listen- when he do the Halloween uh, haunted, haunted Highway? Oh, my gosh. Yes. <laughs> that so was they, my favorite. They would dress me up in a costume, and I'd stand above I-15 on mm-hmm. one of the overdocks, and I'd just go, boo. <laughs> so dumb, dude. Oh, my <laughs> Gosh, people would be driving. People would be driving underneath. We'd be like, sometimes you reach a level of dumb that's just hilarious. Yeah, and that that was my favorite bit. That was the benchmark for our show. Yeah. But when I found out that you're in recovery and you would be willing to come on the podcast and share, I said, let's do it. And you said, "Uh, well, which addiction do you want to talk about? And I was like, there's multiple. All of them. Yes. I said, let's do them all. And uh, let's start from the beginning. Where does the story of Melissa Catmull begin? Um, I born and raised here, grew up in the Cottonwood Heights area, um, but we were very, very poor. <laughs> uh, we lived, I grew up in a trailer park till I was about the age of 11. This trailer park plunked in the middle of million dollar homes. I was going to say, I, I don't No, it know. doesn't exist say, any longer, okay. but you know, we it's probably, had. That's a very affluent area. Yeah, there's correct. a jazz right. player yeah. home right there where, yeah. the, where her trailer where, park was. Oh, really? One of the probably, jazz players? Yeah. Probably yeah. so. You yeah. know, we had bankers and, and doctors and surgeons and general authorities for the LDS church. Um, that Did I, you know you were poor growing up? Um, yes. Yes, I did. I was, was that was that hard to be like? There's I a, was that bullied was a have, all have through not. elementary school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, yeah. So anyway, um, <clears throat> about eleven is when I became aware of like my body was more than a head and arms and legs. A comment was made by a family member, and all of a sudden I realized that um, I might need to be more aware of how I looked. And um, that kind of started those destructive thoughts in one's head about perfection is skinny and perfection is looking like a model and perfection is not being chubby. And so at 11, some a family member commented on you being chubby just in some way. Not in so many words, but yeah. it made me aware of... Oh, self-conscious of that. Correct. Which I is aware of that. so destructive, uh, obviously, as you're going to tell us. But I need to remind parents of this. I can't believe I have to remind parents of this all the time. Before kids grow tall, they grow a little wide. 
And that's how puberty and maturation works. It's a normal, healthy process. But there are so many parents that see those kids start to grow wide a little bit. And because of their own issues or prejudices, they'll start to comment on that. And it can be a lifelong scar that stays with somebody. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And so um, about the time that I was 12, my parents um, began a very, very contentious divorce child custody battle that me and my brother were pretty much the the go-between. They put us right in the middle. Yeah. I had two younger sisters, but they were like 11 and 13 years younger than us. Um, we all have the same biological father, but they grew up much different than I. So um, we kind of went through that. That was very traumatic. And then at 14, my father died suddenly oh. of a massive heart attack. And that was very traumatic. Wow. And I really didn't have anybody to turn to. I didn't, I did not have a good relationship with my mom. I grew up thinking my mom hated me, <laughs> that she didn't like me at all. It was always my dad and my mom and me and my dad. So when we had that trauma of the divorce and then his death and then, you know, all growing up, he was in uh, law school and college, so thus we were poor. As he went to school and worked and tried to do what he could do, provide for the family. Exactly, um, and 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 I had a great childhood. I mean, it was you know it was good. My my parents were good. They did the very best they could. But after all of that, you know, we lost our home. We had to move over. So growing up in Cottonwood Heights, then we had to move to Kearns. So it was just this huge disruption in my life from about the age of. 12 till I was 15. Only the most important developmental years, junior I, high I and high school, I recognize that right? now yeah, as wow. an adult. Like, That's, that was yeah. a lot for mm-hmm. a little girl to handle with yeah. no one really to to go to. Right. And um, so that summer between 14 and 15 is where I began some really strong disordered um, eating behavior. And I gained a lot of weight. And then the self-loathing kicks in and you realize, I don't like how I look. And so it was kind of a battle. So you probably eating for comfort, right? Like I was. Binging. I had nothing else to go to. So, yeah, it was binging, purging, compulsive eating. Yeah. Nobody wants to watch the girl, fat girl eat, so you eat in private. Yep. And then you can eat whatever you want, however much you want. Um, so I kind of battled all of that. Which when you break it down to an addiction, I mean, that's the isolating, that's the overindulgence. Sure. And, and I mean, it's... And yeah. you're feeding a need, you're self-medicating essentially with food. Absolutely. Right? And, 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 and I don't know, but I got to assume there's a euphoric feeling that comes with it uh, or, or, or maybe a release. Oh, absolutely. So our brains are pre-programmed to do things that keep us alive and mm-hmm. we get rewarded neurologically for doing things that keep us alive. Sleeping feels really good. Eating feels really good. Sex feels really good. All those sorts of things. Sure. So yeah, absolutely. If you're feeling low and terrible and lonely and scared and you realize that eating high carb, high sugar things, you know, filling yourself right up and that triggers those feel good things in your brain. Absolutely. But then right after you get those feel goods, you get the self-loathing. It's the shame. It's the yep. guilt. It's the self-loathing. So is, it, of, is it because you see the wrappers or you see what you've done? I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to understand it. Um, I look in the mirror. I I don't like how my body feels. I don't like feeling good in my skin. I don't like the, the reflection back at myself. Mm-hmm. So I kind of battled that all through high school. Um, my senior year, I met my husband and at the time, I had lost some weight, um, so I was feeling pretty good about myself. 
And then slowly it kind of – I went back to some – I was comfortable again with I, – I don't even know why, but I kind of went back to that. So I bounced around a little bit with that until um, – At any point in your high school or your, you know, your, your early teens and 20s, did anybody say, hey, you might have a meat eating disorder? Did, nope. N- nobody had a clue? No. First of all, it wasn't much talked about back then. Yep. And eating disorder was an anorexic. That was that was all that, that people was associated eating disorders with. So now, I remember being a little kid and hearing my parents talk about, I won't name the family members, but there were two of them, who their diet, my parents used the word diet, I remember that, they were on this diet, and it was uh, throwing up after they eat was their diet. And so this would have been probably late 70s, early 80s. I was pretty young, and I remember think, but I remember my parents rarely sounded worried about things. My parents, I'm sure they were, but they just had that way of talking, you know, everything's great. And they sounded worried that this wasn't a healthy diet. And I remember thinking, you know, I'm like nine. I'm like, why would you throw up after you eat? You yeah. know, like, that's weird. You like, just did all that work to get it in. Yeah, it seems like, you know, but go ahead. Yeah, but yeah it, that, that it was just seen, wasn't acknowledged. Right. We, yeah, diet. And, and that different. was very prominent. I mean, I, you know, I grew up in the 70s, graduated high school in 84, so... A, I'm old, and B, that was just a different culture around things like that. Exactly. Nobody really talked about it. Um, and eating disorders aren't talked about a whole lot now either, and mm. that's because There's a lot of, of shame, stigma. Shame. Shame. It yeah. is a disorder that is centered around shame and guilt. Um, so anyway, I, I was pretty, pretty good. I mean, there's always those thoughts there. Once you start down that path, those thoughts live in your head 24-7. There's no escaping that. You're either active in your disordered behavior or you're surviving and keeping those voices to a whisper. So sitting down to a dinner with your family or your husband or whatever, that normally wasn't a fun time for you because either you're going to indulge in it or you can't because you got the thoughts running through your head. A hundred percent. Yeah. And uh, I should point out this. You mentioned purging or, or making yourself vomit. So think everybody for a minute. Think about the last time you had a really bad stomach ache or the flu and then you threw up. How did you feel right after? Awesome. Yes. So you do have your brain. That's another built in mechanism in your brain. If there's something bad in your stomach, it could kill you. So if you throw it up, your brain goes, good job. And it gives you that dopamine rush and you feel a euphoric feeling. And so you have, you know, you, you binge to fill yourself up and you get that positive reinforcement from your brain. Then you vomit and you get that positive reinforcement from your brain. The only difference is these aren't, uh, these aren't chemicals that you're putting into your body in a pill form. They're already there and your brain's releasing them. So you have opiate receptors in your brain that are you know, analgesic. They're numbing. They make you feel euphoric and light. They're already in your brain. When we put an opiate in our body through a pill, it triggers those, those receptors. But you can turn them on in other ways. And binging and purging is a way to get basically an opiate high. It's very similar to that. It, exactly. And so that's why um, people don't understand or realize that Eating disordered behaviors are addictions. I mean, I, I once I got through high school, I didn't care for that piece of it. Um, I now fall under the the rank of an anorexic. But there's a high that comes from from the deprivation from too. the deprivation from of, starving yourself. Of, mm-hmm, there is so like there's a high of stepping on the scale and seeing numbers drop. There's a high of going to bed and going, 
I kept my calories under 700 today. Oh, oh my gosh. So there is a high with the, that comes with that. So it is an addiction. I'm good if addiction. I keep lunch calories under 700. So let me ask you this. <laughs> is it is it is it complimentary in the fact that most people or a lot of people with an eating disorder go from one to the other back and forth? Or is it usually I'm in the binge and purge camp and I'm the anorexic camp? Or do you go back and forth on that line a couple of times through your addiction? For myself and what I've seen through um, some treatment that I did, um, you tend to kind of find one camp and stay there. And so um, if you're a binger and a purger, that tends to be your modus operandi. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. DOC. If you're an anorexic, there's also other eating disorders, orthorexia, um, people, I don't remember the name, people who just will only eat healthy things and they limit what they will eat. There's a, there's a wonderful a facility things, yeah. in Utah called the Center for Change. Yes, and I'm familiar with that. And, and, we'll and, get there. And they do some great work. Yeah. So now you're in your mid-20s. Mm-hmm. and uh, Raising my kids. Things are pretty stable. I pick up running. I get really into running. I love it. But you're anorexic. But I'm I, 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 not active at that point. I'm able to, to function. I'm able to keep things going. Those voices are there, but I'm able to kind of maintain a I, I hold a full time job, I'm in a career, raising my kids, and then my kids uh my kids hit teenage years and I raised three boys. Very busy, active boys, and my oldest was a challenge for us. He he didn't want to fo- uh, follow family rules. We're active um, Latter-day Saint, previously the known as Mormons, and so we kind of had a, a, a guideline of rules in our house and and he just didn't he wanted a different path in his life. And it just was very, very stressful. I mean, all three of them were teenagers at one time. And my house was the house where everybody congregated, much to my pleasure. Mm-hmm. I designed it to be that way. That's the way to be, but it is stressful. It is extremely stressful and expensive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of Judas, potato chips. man, I would come home from the grocery store. Okay, everybody here, this ice cream, it's yours. That's the bucket. Yeah. This ice cream, mine, don't touch. Yeah. And, of course, yours ended up gone, too, I'm sure. Well, yeah, yeah. teenage boys. <laughs> anyway, stressful, stressful. Um, he was about 18, and his girlfriend was pregnant, and they decided to get married. And I didn't realize through the past couple of years I had eaten myself to something I didn't recognize. I was stress eating. Another disordered behavior. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like I stepped away from the deprivation to I am going to get through this stressful time by eating which is another addict behavior right Correct. coping mechanism it's it a is coping a coping mechanism, mechanism. Yeah, we're self I saw a picture of myself and then that's where i immediately flipped back to what i knew worked because you got a wedding coming up because got a wedding i didn't like myself i i went back to the gym i started running again and slipped right back into the behavior that was so detrimental. That's so, the restricting behavior? Restricting. Yeah. Restricting what, what and over-exercising. What age were you then? Um, let's see. My oldest granddaughter is 15 and a half, so um, it was about 15 years ago. Um, I would say... 47? In my mid-40s. Yeah. 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 
Um, and that kind of continued and continued and continued. And but there's got to be something with that. Uh, you know, I when you limit yourself to calories, you go back to the gym, and when you do that, and you're telling people I'm going back to the gym, it almost gives you ammo for people who are going to say something to you, because you go, I'm going to the gym. I'm working out. That's that's it can be cloaked in healthy behavior. Yes, right? exactly. And I would get mad because people go, "Oh my gosh, you've you've lost too much weight." And I'm like, "Look at what you're carrying around. We both have a disorder. You're mm. just not recognizing yours because nobody Ooh, talks about it." I've done that. Right? Back. I, nope, I've done that. I mean, when I was active addiction drinking, and somebody who was obese would say, "Look at you, man. You're just killing yourself." And I'd be like, "Really? Yeah." Which one of us is likely to drop dead at any moment? Mm, probably you. But but I mean but that's it was just it was just it's a defensive. It was a defense yeah, mechanism. Yeah, yeah. It was a way to get the attention off of me, put it back on you, and you know smoke and mirrors, and oh, let's move on well, to the next conversation. Justification, another thing that addicts are really good at. Yeah, and uh, we're going to justify this break because we got to pay the bills. You're listening to Project Recovery right here. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. Casey Scott, that's Dr. Matt Willier. Our guest today is Melissa Catmull. Uh, she's talking about how uh, she found out her 18-year-old son uh, is getting married. They got a child on the way. Uh, you look in the mirror, and I uh, realized you put on some uh, extra weight over the past couple of years. So you wanted to remedy that, and you went back to what you know, and that is anorexia. So you limit your calories. You start going to the gym. And how does it work for you? Um, pretty good. I get, I get down to where I feel comfortable and then I, I stay pretty, pretty stable there. Um, where you felt comfortable, was that what a doctor would consider as a healthy weight? Um, no one really said anything to me about it other than it came fast, but then I, I leveled off. And so there were comments right at first and then that kind of slowed down when I, when I maintained, leveled out. Yeah. Leveled out. Maintained. Yes. That's where we're going to jump to the other segment of my story, which is um, I'm running a lot at this point. Injuries here and there, stress fracture here, stress fracture there. Pretty typical of a runner who's running a lot of miles. And now, when you say a lot of miles, how many miles a day? Um, on average, I would say more per week. I was around the thirty to thirty-five miles per week. Wow. Uh, I was also doing some triathlons. Really loving all of that kind of stuff. Um, and there's and, and there's there's dopamine and there's a high that comes with oh, that. So much, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I had started having some pain behind a, a, my right scapula, and it wasn't going away. I was going to my sports massage therapist. I was, you know, doing all kinds of things to try and alleviate the pain. Saw a sports med doctor, and um, he recommended uh, physical therapy. He did some imaging. Saw that I had a bulging disc in in one of my like C four C five maybe around in your there vertebrae. Yes, and so I went to the PT for some traction and some stuff, and the PT looked at the imaging and said, "You've got a bone spur sitting on that. There's no way you you have to have surgery." So I had two neck surgeries to take out the bulging disc, shave off the bone spurs front and back, and I still was having so much pain. Just debilitating my arm was going numb just pain and the surgeon had kind of exhausted his means i don't know what else to do for you you should see a pain management doctor so i had seen one in the past for some bulging discs in my neck went back to him and this doctor 
was doing injections, increasing pain meds, adding more benzodiazepines. I was already on clonazepam for some anxiety and panic attacks. And I kept going in. He would do a procedure. He would increase the medication. No relief. The last time I went into him, the, the nurse was writing the prescription according to his orders, and she said, well, the pharmacy won't accept it this way, so I'm going to write it this way, but we both know what you're really taking. Mm, and I wow. knew at that moment that was wrong. Yeah. But I didn't care. I just had to get rid of the pain. Right. And um, so I'm taking it. You know, I'm taking so, those drugs. I'm driving. I'm going to work. I'm maintaining a life. So you're on an opioid. And a I'm on Oxy. Um, yeah. It was Lortab and increasing Lortabs. I was already taking my clonazepam. So you're on two different benzodiazepines? Yeah, he added Valium to that mix. Holy And cow. then just kept increasing it. <laughs> and you were driving around? Oh, working. Wow. Living life, running, I racing, I would be doing asleep. my thing. I think most people would be asleep. Um, but that shows a certain level of tolerance, right? Like if you, if you just started on that little cocktail you described, you'd be out for a couple of days. Anybody I, would. Or dead. Increasing, <clears throat> or pay, increasing. Per, Potentially. But as your body, you know, your body adapts to and habituates to those sorts of drugs, and then you're all of a sudden taking quite the cocktail, but still able to go to work. That's amazing. And run. And yeah, do all that. I mean, you just kind of fight through the pain and you do it. Most runners, athletes are kind of like that. It's, it hurts, but I go. Yeah, yeah. I have a best friend who happened to be a nurse up at uni. It's now Huntsman something. Huntsman Mental it was Health uni Institute. at the time. I've been yeah. there. I think this was like 2016-ish. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, she called me one night on her way home from work and said, I'd like to come and speak to you and your husband. And we're like, fine, whatever. And she came down and sat at our kitchen table. And I I get a little bit emotional She saved my life. And this, sorry, this had to have been incredibly hard for her because worst case scenario, she was no longer my friend. So it was very brave of her to do this. But she sat down and said, listen, this is what's going to happen. You're going to go to sleep and you're not going to wake up. Or you're going to get in your car and you're going to crash and kill yourself. Or worse, you're going to get in your car and you're going to crash. You're going to kill somebody else. And if you don't die, you're going to be in prison. I love you. You need help. She left. I was pissed. But my sweet husband took action. And he looked at all my meds and he's like, all right, where can we cut back? What do you think you could get by with this? What, you know, she's raised a a, a reasonable thing and, and... From that moment, it was pleading, let's get you in, let's get some help. And I'm like, but you don't understand. I hurt. I'm in so much pain. You're negotiating. Correct. Yes. I mean, I I didn't know what to do. I just wanted the pain to go away. I agreed to go to this kind of addiction group thing. And there were a couple of other men in there. And she came with me. My husband came with me. And I thought, I don't belong here. I'm not one of you. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not addicted to porn. I'm not addicted to drugs. Meth. I've got this because I did surgery on my neck. And I'm taking the medicines the doctors gave me. I'm just trying to get rid of the pain. Yeah. And so when it came my, my turn to share, and I flat out said, I don't belong here. And the doctor said, 
asked me my story. I told him, he's like, listen, you need to, we, we need to help you. I said, why? I, you know, I could detox on my own. Let me just do that. He's like, no, 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 no. You're at risk of dying. Seizures. And um, two of the worst uh, substances to withdraw from and detox are alcohol and opioids. Yep. So you need medical supervision. Great. I can do that. But at the time, I was the young women's president um, of the young women's organization of my church, and we were going to camp. <laughs> and I needed, I had to detox after camp. <laughs> yeah. I said, I'll go. That's exactly what I said. I'll be in after camp. I'm going to be high all during camp, but I'll detox after. Listen, I didn't realize I'd been high for years. Yeah. For, yeah, yeah. for months, I should say. Well, I think that's. Well, me, that, wait, did you really not know? I didn't. I didn't know. For me, I never felt high. That was that yeah. was my clarify. I never felt high. I think that one of the one of the the biggest insidious lies about opiates is their incremental nature. They take over little by little. The little steps are so small that people they're not taking them to get high. They're taking them to maintain. And when you said, I'm in so much pain, I've got to take them, what we found out now is that actually because of that habituation to the pain, you're making the pain worse over time by taking high levels of opiates. Isn't that crazy? He's smart, huh? You're going to be proved right when you hear what they oh, diagnosed me with. I love to be proved with. right. Yes. <laughs> um, so, so anyway, um, I'll be back after camp. We're driving home from uni, and I can remember the exact spot on I-215 where I said, the thought was, you just need to do this. So I made a couple calls, made some arrangements for girls camp, and we went home. I said, you check to make sure the insurance is going to cover this, because if it's not going to cover, I'm not going to go. Husband goes back. He's in the office. He's tick, tick, tick on the computer. I'm getting my Yankees blankie things I want with me, and... And I said, okay. He said, we're good. We go back up. She's starting all the intake information, the receptionist, and he pulls me aside and says, actually, it's not covered. But I didn't tell you that because I don't want you to not do it. Mm. I figured out how we're going to pay for this. Gotcha. Again, I was ready to bail. No, no, we're here. So during my intake, they explained how we like to do this is use Suboxone. And But Suboxone's addicting, so then we're going to step you down from that. Right. To me, that made zero sense. Why would I get off of one addicting drug onto another to then be detoxed from that? So I'm like, mm, no, no Suboxone. Let's just do this. Ooh. They're like, are you sure? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm dead sure. Yeah. Later, I found out maybe that wasn't such yeah. a smart idea. Yeah. Um, I don't remember the next 48 hours Except for a time when my best friend who worked there at uni came up with Cafe Rio. I remember that. I remember a little bit in group, um, but the nights were the worst. The nights were awful. And I remember one night distinctly going, I am so sick and I am so miserable. And I just wanted my grandma. I just wanted my grandma who had passed on. And and she got me through that night. Um and they had said it would be about two weeks. After I believe it was four days, I was cleared to discharge. Mm, really? Mm-hmm. Um, they diagnosed me with what, and this will be familiar to you, Dr. Matt, and I had to write it down no, so I good. wouldn't forget. It's called two things. It was called um, hyperallergesia mm-hmm. and allodynia. Yep. 
And the way they explained it to me, because I never got high off of the oxy or any of those things, is there literally was nothing there to cause pain physically. But the brain is so addicted to that drug that it creates pain signals in order for you to keep feeding it that medication. So you, you, you didn't have pain. So when you sat in that meeting and you were telling them you were taking it for the pain. No, no. She had pain. I had pain. But pain signals were coming the, the from the brain. The is called psychogenic. But it was the brain causing that. Right. So Correct. The pain that would have come from her surgery was past. But during that process of treating that pain, she became addicted to the opiates. And then when the pain that would have been caused from the, the injury site from the surgery was healed, the brain was so addicted to that that it sends neurological signals that create pain in that same spot. Whoa. So the answer is actually, yes, she did have pain, but the pain was being caused by the brain sending signals to create pain so that you would get, so the brain would get treated with the opiate. That's isn't that, isn't that, it just sounds like it couldn't happen, but, but it did, but it does. And it happens in so many patients. In fact, there are so many patients out there right now trying to manage their pain with opiates, and they don't even realize that's what's happening to them. If they would go get detoxed, they would be free of the pain. But instead, they take more opiates. So after four days, did they discharge you? They discharged me. They sent me home on some med- – so no benz- benzos, no yeah. oxys. I actually had them put it in my chart that I was allergic to it, so people couldn't give it to me. Um that's smart. But they did send me home on one particular medication that then we flipped back to the other addiction of eating disorder, and that was called Topamax. And you're probably familiar with that, Dr. Matt. Yep. Uh, it, I've come to find out they use it in women for weight loss. Right. So, so two things combined to create me back into the anorexia, and that was I was so scared of ever touching an oxy again, ever touching an oxy again, that... Just literally like a week or so after, well, a couple of weeks, I f- fell running and broke my, my elbow. And I was so afraid of taking any kind of oxy that I just ate ibuprofen. Mm-hmm. Ibuprofen. And so between the ibuprofen completely wrecking my stomach, didn't want to eat, hurt to eat, and then the Topamax that killed my appetite, I again quickly lost a lot of weight. Mm. And once that weight came off, that that high of, oh my gosh, look at me dropping this weight. And I only had a diet Dr. Pepper bottle all day long. And look at me, that's so great. And I feel good. And I'm, I can feel my bones. That, that feels good to me. Mm. That addiction is right back in place. And that, this time it got really out of control to the point where my husband and, and other family members were trying to intervene and we need to get you some help. And my husband should be a saint. I mean, I know in the LDS church we don't have saints, but if we did, my <laughs> well, Splendid Daddy would Maybe be a saint. Maybe we could create a few saints. His name is Dave, but he is called saint, Splendid Saint Dave. Splendid Daddy. Splendid Daddy. Oh, <laughs> I like that. He's not a full-on sugar daddy. He doesn't give me everything I want, but he takes very good care of me. Splendid Daddy. He's the next best thing to sugar, oh, and that's, that's Splendid. Great. I that's like great. that. Yeah. So anyway, so they intervene and, and they try so to get you help. He, he did finally. You know, he was researching and googling and send me stuff, and 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 everybody's good intentions are backfiring. Because when you're in that active anorexia mind, 
you're already full of shame and guilt. You Mm -hmm. already know what you're doing is going to kill you. You know that in this logical side of your brain. But this other side of your brain wins. Oh. It wins every time. I the the most stubborn and rigid patients I have ever spoken to are anorexic patients. They have their mindset and you cannot change it. It's it it actually changes functions in your mm-hmm. brain, we've learned. Anyway, so I did concede to go to Centers for Change. You did. I did. I I didn't do inpatient. I said I will do outpatient. Little IOP. Uh-huh. And and I love what they do there. I would recommend anybody to go there. I have a couple of close friends who have gone or are still going there, and it I have nothing but high praise for them. They have a team approach. The therapist, you have a therapist, you have a dietitian, and then you go to group therapy. Loved my therapist. I lied to my dietitian every single time I met with her. <laughs> lied. I'd go, uh-huh, yeah, I can have that. Mm-hmm, sure, yeah, I can do that. Walk out the door, I'm not going to do any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the group therapy, I wasn't a real fan of. That's I, okay. It, you know, it was, I, in my messed up brain, I would sit and look and go, well, I'm not as bad as them, I'm fine. You know, it's funny because I said the same thing about my group when I was in there. Right. And, and I was like, I'm in here for Bud Light. Right. You know what I mean? And, right. It's like, you know. I, but I remember my therapist because I told him that. And he goes, really? Your life's so good. Do you know where you are? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody can put it to you quite like an addiction therapist. Yeah. Right? He goes, I don't know if you know this, but you're in the same house with all these people. I don't think your life is as good as you think it is because uh, yeah. this is not going well for you, Mr. Scott. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 I got treatment for several months, um, and I was able to just maintain and, and level and come to some sort of medium with everything. Yeah. And then I um, was gifted a life of a, a, a trip of a lifetime with my mom um, over to the Middle East. So I needed to cancel like three weeks of appointments. And so I'm like, I'll, I'll start back up when I, when I get back into the country. And I had such a life-altering experience there that I'm like, I, I'm good. I don't need to go back. And so I didn't. And I've been able to mostly maintain a very I, – I feel like – it's like I, I told Casey earlier. I consider myself in active recovery. It's – an eating disorder's always there. A hundred percent. It never stops. It's 24-7 unless you are completely asleep. We were it's talking there. about this because you think about it. She's still got to eat. Yeah. And she's got this love-hate relationship with food and you've got it, you know what I mean? It's It's it, always there. It's always there. And so I mean, you and it's in front of you and it's the way families show love, it's the way people, you know, show support, you know, hey, what can I bring you to eat and all that stuff. So, I mean, it's got to be in your face all the time. Casey can go his whole life with never having another beer. True. A meth addict can go their whole life and never touch the drug again. They fight the re- they fight the addiction every day. They mm-hmm. might think about it, but they don't have to have it. Correct. Right. You have to. That's have That's why eating disorders are so insidious and so deadly, because you have to eat to live, and so, and I think oftentimes um, it's not talked about enough, it's not addressed enough, and it's not. Um. There's so much shame and so much guilt associated with it. 
Anorexia, um, anorexics are very good liars. Oh, I totally ate. Mm-hmm. Yep, I yeah, did. Yeah, for sure. They'll lie. Oh, no, I'm fine. I'm totally good. I'm going to the gym. That's why you see changes in me. I'm, I'm going to the gym. I'm a runner. That's why you see changes in but me. And that's just use, basic addict behavior. Yeah, but you used the term over-exercise earlier. Yes. And I want to point that out, that there are, with eating disorders, there are the direct behaviors that are associated with either eating or not eating food. We, we recognize that. But there are peripheral behaviors that are support that eating disorder. And so over-exercising, the use of diet pills or laxatives, these sorts of things, uh, you know, uh, also support or are part of that web of addictive behavior that uh, comes with eating disorders. So it's, it's a lot more complicated than just what you're eating or what you're not eating. True. And I feel like there's so many disordered behaviors I mean, you've got the overeater, mm-hmm. you've got the uh, anorexic, you've got the binge purger, you've got the the one that I was talking about where they limit what foods they will eat and they have to right. be organic and they have to be natural and they have to be healthy. Or they just think they are. Like a lot of people will get it in their head that a certain fruit is like the best thing for them or these other, and they'll just... That's all they'll eat. My ex-wife and her mother used to go on once a year this cabbage soup diet. And it was <laughs> the worst thing ever. I bet it ever. smelled great in your whoa, house. It was rancid. And they would cook a big pot of this. Oh. And they would just eat that cabbage soup for three days. Oh, man. And, and spend all their time in the bathroom? Oh, man. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and they called it a cleanse. And I mean, they, they're doing uh, suffer disorders. type but, of I mean, cleanse, But I, I mean, it's one of those things, you know. And uh, I, yeah. It's very rare, I think, to meet someone who has a healthy relationship with food. Food is – so food is a really – complicated psychologically you mentioned that we need food to live so food's always there it's always part of our lives and food becomes part of celebrations oh yeah right like if you think of a party without pizza what fun is that it's not a party food also can become part of punishments and reward systems parents and therapists that i know need to make sure that we're not using food in those ways to reward or punish behavior um, you know, that you have to clear everything on your plate. You know, there are a lot of behaviors associated with food. So you're absolutely right. If you really talk to somebody, uh, a mental health professional that's an expert in eating disorders, they can explain to you much more clearly than I can how such a high percentage of people have eating disordered thinking, at least, about food. Now, they may not necessarily meet all the criteria that we were talking about today, but thinking about food uh, and the way we categorize it and the shame, guilt, or pleasure that we associate it with it, it is very complicated, and it's daily. I don't want to throw shade on any of our listeners out there, but if you're listening to this in your car, how many times have you been in the soda pop line today? Oh, so Utah has a wonderful, uh, wonderfully unique. Oh, we got a swig mug on the, on the table. I make my own. Yeah. Oh, I make, make own. my own. Oh, yeah. I, I don't no, give I, them my. No, but that's what I'm saying day. is that there's there's a right. lot of things out there that have addictive behavior attached to them that people don't really realize because it's not something you buy on the street. It's not right. something that someone's coming talking to your kids at school about. There's not a. A government program saying dare, you know, that type of thing. Right. Yeah. No, it's it's interesting. And in fact, I think one of the takeaways I'm having from our conversation today is self-talk. And 
one of the things that spans across all sort of addictive or unhealthy behaviors is how do we talk to ourselves about it and how often do we think about it? During your work day, are you just thinking about what you get to eat later when you go home? If you are, you might want to double check how healthy your relationship is with food. You know, does that make sense? Oh, like, 100%. Like, and you, you mentioned that you go to the LDS church and it's like, you know, how many times at church are there activities without food? Nobody would show you have up. have to have refreshments <laughs> like, or you don't refreshments. get anybody We there. even have the term refreshments. refreshments. <laughs> it's going to refresh us. You know, this giant brownie full of sugar <laughs> and butter is going to refresh me? No, it's going to weigh me down, but it's a refreshment. I love it. So where does your recovery stand? You say you're in active recovery. I am I, in active recovery, meaning I feel um, like the voices are always there, but I'm not actively doing things to um, change my weight, to lose, to gain, to I, I feel like I'm stable. Um, and it's just a daily fight against the voices. Let me ask and you. And I feel like on occasions I win. On occasions you win the voice battle. The behavior battle sounds like you feel like you're doing pretty well with. Behavior battle, I feel like I'm okay. doing. That's a great way. Separate from the thought battle and, and the, the behavior. Behavior. Right. Behavior, right. I'm winning. Yeah. The thought will always be there. And I think for for most people who are in active recovery from anything, the, the thoughts are going to either they're there regularly and might be forever and we might have to accept that or that they're in and out on a regular basis. But I want to ask you this. So just to clarify – uh, substances like opioids and and benzos, those kinds of things, completely out of your life. Is that right? Um, I've I broke my foot a couple of years ago, like right before the pandemic, and I did have a little bit there, but I'm very very cautious with those. Okay, as um, prescribed. Even less than as prescribed. So I was going to say, like, if you're going to give me those, give me like two or so three. You're still and that's a runner. It. I'm still a runner, and so you're going to continue to have. Little Pain. aches and pains here and there, right? Mm-hmm. So I would encourage you to look into the combination of, you know, the acetaminophen and ibuprofen, but meditation. It, interesting. Uh, so I'm a fan of the two and two. Two Tylenol, two Advil. Right. That's a pretty common thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I also use medical marijuana. So that was interesting to hear your your talk about that. For me, I have found things work for me to manage some of the chronic pain that I am left with. My elbow will never be the same. I don't have a radial head in there, you know. Oh, yeah. And so there's some things that are just chronic pain. Um, I did try meditation once, and it was miserable. So I got to tell you, I tried meditation for three weeks straight before it worked. So, I mean, it's one of those things. It's a practice that you have to try and try again. You no, know, I did it with my therapist, um, and it was p- physically painful because you had to sit still. Mm-hmm. And the more I sit still, the more things tighten up and stiffen. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't for me. However, however, ooh. there is mindfulness. Just however, you're however. Oh, I, I as it. a double however. Yeah. I was like, whoa. Um, I just wanted to, to talk over you, which I don't normally do. But, um, <laughs> but, but yeah. mindfulness practices for pain management can be active and often are active. So meditation is definitely most of the time sort of a a simple sitting and do it's not simple but you're you're inactive so you, again there's just a lot of research on pain management with mindfulness and meditation and i'll bet you you could find something in the meditation realm that's active and helpful um i'll tell you my meditation is running yeah and running I, is you know i a have type solved all the world's problems on a run yeah i have you know worked out entire 
things. Um, and, and I'm a big trail runner right now. That's mm-hmm. where I find it up in the mountains or out in the desert. Sure. Um, so yeah, I, I am incorporating some of those practices. Um, well, it might look you... different than what you would typically. That's, no, no, no. no there, there's, I don't think what's great about mindfulness is it's creating a state of mind and there's lots of different ways to do it. And, and so what's nice about that is there's not just one way to do it. What did you really think about what I said about marijuana, though? I want to hear, like, you're using it, medical marijuana, so you have a prescription, you've gone through your doctor, you, you can only get so much every month, you know. You also have an addictive behavior. Yeah. So, you know, but, I mean, so I'm, I'm, an addictive personality? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, what yeah, I yeah. Mean. yeah, yeah. But, but, like, but like, what 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 are your thoughts about that? Do you um, think people can really become addicted to marijuana? I you don't have if, to agree with me, by the way. Uh, yeah. Um, I think if you're getting marijuana off the street and you don't know what's in there, I think I think you very well could become addicted. As you mentioned your your client with the fentanyl, I think there's all kinds of crap that gets oh, yeah, yeah. mixed in it's there again to addict you so that you'll keep coming back to that supplier. Sure. Um I have found that I it works well for me. Hmm. Um I I don't know how I feel about the addiction thing. I I don't think that I could in this in the things that I'm using it for and how I'm using it, but maybe well, I'm proved wrong. I, well, no, I don't no, feel like, are, oh, my gosh, I have to. No, I have to. Yeah, those are two different parts of the conversation okay. that I'm glad you just demonstrated that get mixed up all the time. What's my experience What versus what's the potential experience for groups of people, right? And so what we know with any drug. There's so many people that take opiates and they, they're never tempted to take them. In fact, I will say when I've had a surgery or two and I took opiates, I hated the feeling. Mm-hmm. I didn't like it. Right. And so, um, you know, it, it's your own metabolism. So in your case, you may not really have that potential for marijuana addiction, but a lot of people, you know, they get those two mixed up. They, they kind of personalize it and they say, well, I don't have a problem with Alcohol. I don't. You just stop drinking, Casey. Yeah. Bud Light, for heaven's sake. It's not even real beer. No, I yeah. I right. Get it. Come on, you get that. The, mostly water. Yeah, mostly water. I don't. I I can drink one of those and then go ten years and never have one. What's your problem? You know. Versus recognizing that for some people that is a pretty serious drug. A hundred percent. Yeah. So anyway, just I was curious what you thought. Well, Melissa, I want to say thank you for stopping by and sharing your story. And what I really loved about your story was your honest, honest honest about everything that's going on and there was not a question that you would stray away from and you're raising your hand so i figure you got something else i just i just wanted to say that my whole point in doing this um because it's obviously very hard to talk about but i as i told my mom as i was driving up here she she called and and told her i told her what i was doing and um if I can just help one person, right. whether it's with an eating disorder or acknowledging I'm on this pain medication for pain and I just keep having, I mean, yeah, go to detox and find out if you really do have pain yeah, and then find a different way to address it. If I could give any advice to moms and dads, stop talking about your kid's weight. Yeah. Stop talking about their body. Little girls, oh, you're so cute. Oh, you look so pretty. Stop focusing. You're so smart. You're so clever. You're so funny. Find different ways to engage in conversations and to compliment your children rather than how they look or what they weigh. Oh, I couldn't say that better. That's great. That was amazing. Thank you very much. Dr. Matt? 
Well, uh, I just echo everything you said. Thank you so much for being uh, available and and honest and real. And the truth is there's going to be a lot more than one person that is touched by what you talked about today. Absolutely. And if anything, we we don't as a podcast – Mm -hmm. or a society talk enough about eating disorders. And there's a term called body dysmorphia where people grow up with this warped view and feeling about their body. They don't see themselves the same way. And it often can start with traumatic childhoods and the way that we are conditioned to think about our physical body uh, growing up. And I will say this, if you think it's just a girl problem, you're wrong. Because I I was just thinking through my head, current patients of mine that I work with, and there's a lot of them, um, the only two that I know that are struggling with this uh, sort of issue are both men. Uh, and, and it is an increasing problem, just like we've talked about how pornography use and addiction is becoming an increasing problem for women. Uh, eating disorder and body dysmorphic issues are, they've probably always been a bigger problem for men than we've acknowledged because men sort of go through that a little differently than women do. Um, but uh, it's becoming a huge problem for, for men. So if, you know, back to your advice to parents, which I absolutely put my approval on, uh, that's not just for your little girls, that's for your little boys too. I love it. Thank you very much for stopping by. You've been listening to Project Recovery. And in case you forgot, Project Recovery is what? You know, Casey... It's a KSL podcast. You got it. Right on. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk.